You are listening to the first edition of the Yodakin podcast, where artists from the Barefoot Theatre Group present a dramatized reading of excerpts from a story from the Yoda Press title, The House and Other Stories, by Amit Das Gupta. Amit Das Gupta's Mohua. I first heard about Mohua from Shubir Chatterjee, who used to teach us English literature in school. Shubirda, as we called him, used to work as an editor with a reputed publishing house that paid him a good salary and provided him with a chauffeur-driven car, which, mind you, was considered quite a luxury in those days. Calcutta is a city where it is difficult to keep secrets and before long, word of his impetuous decision quickly spread. Rumour had it that he was trying to get out of an impending engagement to a girl who, he suspected, preferred the perquisites that came with his job over him. When he conveyed his decision, the girl was inconsolable at least for a week. Her friends convinced her that it was providential that it had happened now than later because they added, conspiratorially, imagine if it had happened after you got married. Her parents broke off the engagement. They promptly issued an appropriately worded matrimonial advertisement seeking suitable and emphasized in italics sane applicants for their wheatish-complexioned, convent-educated, 27-year-old, 5 feet 3 inches tall daughter, who had completed a bachelor's degree in history from Loreto College and had recently joined art, cooking and dance classes. From what we gathered, Shubirda didn't appear particularly bothered that the engagement had been broken off or that he had upset his parents or that people were speaking ill of him. He was much younger than the other teachers and his friendly, informal style made it easy to interact with him. Before long, he became quite a favourite with all of us. But he did come up with the most bizarre stories, especially the one about the beautiful Mohua who, he said, had died over a hundred years ago but continued to reside in her ancestral home on Moira Street. Naturally, none of us believed him. But it did send a bit of a shiver up our spine every time Shubirda told us her story. When he saw us staring at him disbelievingly, he would say matter-of-factly that it was all quite true and that when we were older, we could check it out for ourselves. In the evenings, I would head home, eat early and read before I went to sleep. There were four books on my windowsill which I used as my bookshelf. The first was a tattered copy of Sholokov's And Quiet Flows the Dawn. I never read the book because the first 58 pages were missing. How can anyone read a book without knowing how it starts? So, the book would lie around and though I would pick it up now and then and start to read from the 59th page, I would invariably put it down and wonder at what might have happened in the preceding 58 pages. Some might say that I could very well have gone across and picked up a complete copy of the book but I don't think the experience would have been the same. There was something mysterious and alluring about the missing pages that I enjoyed thinking about. Where could they be? Who had torn out those pages and why? I even felt a sense of bonding with the person who had the first 58 pages. After all, he would know how it all began, whereas I would know how it ended. Did he think about where the remaining pages might be? The second book 
was the Oxford English Dictionary, from which every night I would learn one new word, selected alphabetically. These had to be the sort of words that one would never use in conversations. Since, as I mentioned earlier, I had no desire to talk to anyone, I found such words to be very useful and would repeat them over and over, especially while having my bath. Argula, bobble, shuttle, diminuendo, epidermis, and such like. The third book was a 1962 diary which I managed to pick up for two rupees in a second-hand bookshop. As it was now over 35 years since the diary was printed, no one seemed to have any use for the days of the week in that year or on which of those days government holidays had been declared. But all the pages of the diary were blank. And I found that to be most helpful, especially if I needed to write something important, like a reminder to myself, for instance. I inscribed my name in capital letters on the first page and then, as an afterthought, elaborately wrote the words, the diary of, before my name. It felt good, and I often opened the diary to admire my handiwork. The fourth book was my favorite. It was a collection of short stories. I enjoyed the first story very much and read it every night, though on most nights I would fall asleep after reading the first page. In fact, I had read the first page so many times that I became particularly fond of it and would think about the contents for a long time before dozing off. I have no idea about the other stories in the book, but the first one was about a person who woke up one morning to discover that he had changed into a very large insect. And that, since he was lying on his back, he was unable to get off the bed no matter how hard he tried. Naturally, his initial reaction was to dismiss it as being utterly improbable. But when he found that he was flapping his arms and legs about uselessly, he realized that it was all quite true. It struck an immediate chord with me, and I often wondered if I would face a similar predicament. In any case, the way everyone in the office avoided all contact with me made me quite sure that I was already some kind of alien insect, which they could see but I couldn't. I found myself increasingly enjoying the feeling. I also found myself wondering as to what might have happened to Shubhirta. I told myself that it was very probable that his sudden disappearance was because he too woke up one morning to find that he had undergone a dramatic metamorphosis into a monstrous beetle and had decided that it would be inappropriate for him to go to school looking like that. What a sight that would have been. I also found that I could not get Moira Street and Mohua out of my mind. I slowly limped from the inside of the compound towards the gates and the adjacent guard post and then along the perimeter wall of the house. I was inside for the first time and felt an urge to get to know every nook and cranny of the old house. I paused beside the banyan trees and reverentially touched the trunk of the trees. All this I had seen only from the outside. Now, inside the boundary wall, I felt a strange emotion, the kind you feel when you realize that for far too long you have simply been senselessly wandering, looking for that one place where you feel you actually belong. And that finally, after so long, you have miraculously arrived at that very place. I inhaled deeply, 
soaking in this rich experience. Walking was not easy because of the overgrown weeds and the wild bushes that had invaded the place. The trees had shed their leaves and I wondered if there were snakes around. The dead leaves were high enough to swallow my shoe and as I walked, my useless leg dragged the leaves like a broom. Before long, I reached a large open area behind the house that seemed to have been especially created when the house was constructed like some kind of private garden. There was a stone canopy with four pillars at one corner covering what looked like three graves. Moss had covered much of the canopy and parts of it were broken. I slowly walked up to it, took my face towel out of my pocket and bent down to clean the first grave as much as I possibly could of the dirt and the dead leaves for I could clearly see that there was a name etched on the grave. Sushmita Rutde. I heard a voice say from behind me. I spun around to find the tea stall owner standing there, smoking a cigarette. What are you doing here? I stammered. It was strange that I had not heard him approach because surely, as he walked over the dry dead leaves, I ought to have heard him. I could see you enter through the opening in the wall and decided to join you, he said. Ignoring the look on my face, he informed me that the family had converted to Christianity. Parimal Albert Day and Ruth were married for barely four years when she died giving birth to Mohua, who was christened Emily. I could now make out the inscription on the grave. As I read the words, I realized that I did not feel like an intruder after all. And it seemed to me as if the words were reaching out to me across time and space. Here lies Sushmita Ruth Day. Born January 19th, 1856, died March 3rd, 1875, taken from our midst too soon. Rest in peace in the arms of our Lord. She was barely 19 years old when she died. The grave in the middle was simpler and had the name Mohua inscribed on it. There was no date of birth or death, just the words Sleep now, for you sleep with loved ones. And beside it was a third grave with the letter J inscribed on it and the same words as those on Mohua's grave. I would surely have missed the fourth grave if it had not been pointed out to me by the tea stall owner with a jerk of his thumb. It was without a name and outside the canopy. Almost as if it were the grave of an outsider and put there as an afterthought. Come, he said. Let us sit here beside the graves and talk. The dead love company, did you know that? It makes them feel wanted. I stood looking at the graves as he walked away briefly and returned with a bunch of hibiscus flowers, which he solemnly put on the graves of Ruth, Mohua, and the one that had the letter J. He ignored the fourth grave. The sun was now setting and soon it would be dark. He got up from where he was lying down beside the graves. It was almost as if he had been recounting the story to the sky and the branches of the tree overhead, because not once had he turned to look at me during this entire time. We must go, he said. The house will awaken soon. 
I got up as well but found it quite odd that he should bend down and kiss the tombstones of Ruth and of Mohua and to let his hand linger over their names and that of the one with the letter J. I said nothing as we walked back slowly to his tea stall. I settled down on the wooden bench with a cup of hot and freshly brewed tea. By now, I seem to have become a familiar sight at his tea stall because one or two of the customers nodded at me in recognition. Quite strangely, I found myself acknowledging their greeting with a smile. I found my response to be extremely odd because, as I might have told you, I have a principle that with strangers there really is nothing to be gained by trying to give the impression that you wish to be friends with them when you really can't. I've found most people in any case to be vacuous and inquisitive. Time spent with them is actually time wasted. What could you possibly talk to them about? If for instance you spoke to them about the unique ability of some people to become insects or even shared with them the words you had recently learned they would not understand. Imagine using words like loquacious or numismatics or antediluvian or even axorial in front of them. The very thought would be positively repulsive. Shubirda used to tell us that our time on earth is precious and that we must inculcate the habit of using it judiciously. Wise is he, we had often heard him say, who is aware that time never stops. So spend your time wisely. And so when I returned the acknowledgement of complete strangers with a smile, I was quite surprised at myself. But then again, when you think of it, if so much were to happen in a matter of days, you are most likely to end up doing things that you would not normally do or even might have frowned upon. I need to know what happened after that. I told the tea stall owner impatiently and I could see that he understood my urgency. Then we are dining together again, he said, as he washed some rice and put it to cook and proceeded to chop onions, tomatoes, chilli and garlic. Anybody would think you like my cooking, he said with a guffaw taking out a bottle of country liquor. Tell me, I asked him, how do you know so much about the Day family? He looked at me, squinting his eyes and said, You really are a funny chap. Before I have even finished one story, you want to know another one? He continued, Once the dinner was over, the men moved on to other rooms for their pipe and brandy, and the women went off to freshen up before the music and dance performances were to begin. Mohua went to the garden and sat by her mother's grave. She had enjoyed herself so much and had met so many interesting people. It was then that she heard the sound of a horse trotting up the driveway and realized that another guest might have just arrived. Her father would be busy and so she went out to receive the guest. Sitting atop a black stallion, dressed in army uniform, was the most handsome man she had ever set eyes on. The man dismounted and walked towards her, taking his gloves off. He bent low to kiss her hand, never once taking his eyes off her, and said, I am Jonathan. If only I had known how lovely you are, I would have come a day earlier. Mohua felt herself flush. Would you like to come for a ride on my horse? He asked. 
and as she eagerly nodded he mounted his horse and bending low he held her by the waist and effortlessly lifted her to ride side saddle in front of him with his arms around her as he held the reins he turned his horse around with a flick of his wrist and galloped off it was the first time that mohua had ever been outside the house and she ought to have been excited with what she saw but her mind was elsewhere and as she felt his arms around her she did not know what to think she loved the warmth that permeated through their clothes and felt her skin tingling all over It did occur to her but only fleetingly that her father would worry and the guests would wonder but for now she closed her eyes allowing herself to be swept by the moment as she rested her head on his shoulder they rode on through the streets of calcutta and beside the lake gardens neither spoke a word and all she could hear was the steady gallop of the horse we must turn back she said after quite a while do not really wanting to he nodded and put his horse to a canter before turning him around and heading back home when they arrived As you can well imagine a visibly worried Mr Day was pacing up and down with Mr Nicholson by his side who repeatedly informed him that his son was a good lad despite being prone to eccentricities Jonathan got off the horse and then as gently as ever he lifted Mohua off it standing close to her he took her hand in his and brought it to his lips and then without any warning he put his hands to her face and kissed her on her lips before mohua or anyone could say anything he was back on his horse i'll see you tomorrow he said to her and tipping his hat to mr day and his father he gently turned his horse around and trotted off mr day was livid i ask you which father would not be put yourself in his shoes and try to understand mr day put on his riding gear his horse was saddled and ready he rode off in the direction of mr nicholson's house it was a full moon night but then he did not in fact go to mr nicholson's house he rode for a few miles his own mind in great turmoil How did Mohua come to know what had happened to Jonathan he asked himself this would make things difficult he would need to find a way of making her understand should he say he had nothing to do with Jonathan's death he turned his horse around and rode back to his house Mohua was standing downstairs in the main reception hall behind her was the painting of Ruth Jonathan is fine i just met with his father mr day smiled and told her Mohua just stared at her father and then she handed him an open envelope. This came shortly after you left, she said, her voice as cold as ice. Mr. Day froze when he saw the royal insignia on the envelope. His fingers were trembling as he took the letter out. It was addressed to Mohua. 
My dear child, it began. I write to you with the deepest sadness to let you know that my son, Jonathan, is dead. It happened two days ago near the lake gardens, shortly after he left your house. It appears that he was waylaid by a group of bandits. Why he had to be killed, I do not know. Mr. Day sank to his knees. He felt cold. Hours passed. The house seemed enveloped in a deathly silence and Mr. Day was unable to get Mohua to open the door to her room. After a while, he could not hear any further sound from inside her room. He had no idea what she might be doing. He begged her to open the door and to let him in. When a few hours had passed and there was still no response from Mohua, Mr. Day got worried and asked for the caretaker to help him break open the door. There was a lot of running around to find the right implements because the door was made of the finest Burma teak. It took considerable effort before the hinges finally gave way. Mr. Day rushed in to find Mohua hanging from the ceiling. None of the members of his house staff could ever recall seeing him so distraught. He seemed to have lost his voice as he kept staring at that still body. Strange sounds came from him, as if he were being strangled. She was dressed in the mauve sari that she had first worn when she met Jonathan that Friday evening. On her neck and hands, she wore her mother's jewellery. One of her slippers had come off and was on the floor. Did she struggle, he wondered, as the noose tightened around her neck. Oh dear God, oh dear God, he kept mumbling to himself. What have I done? He knew that the house staff had also come into the room and that everyone was crying. His eyes were riveted on his daughter and on her face. It was then that he noticed that she had the vermilion mark on the parting in her hair, the sign of a married woman. It shocked him. Was she married? What was going on? In a trance, he got up on the bed and held her body as her head was gently taken out of the noose. Her neck was broken and her head limply fell on his shoulders. He wept silently as he held her clothes, kissing her face over and over again. He gently lowered her on the bed and closed her eyes. She lay on her bed as if asleep. He had wiped the traces of blood on her neck where the rope had cut and bruised her skin. Incense sticks were lit all around the bed. No, doctor, he said in a faint and hoarse whisper. Please, no one is to know. At least not till tomorrow morning. Leave me now so that I might stay beside my daughter for this one last night. The house staff were initially hesitant to leave, but then they understood how broken he must feel and how he must be blaming himself for her death. They were all weeping in shock and horror. Mr. Day closed the door and when he was sure that they had all gone down the stairs, very quietly he moved a table against the door to jam it from opening. As he was doing so, he noticed a letter addressed to him by Mohua. It was only a single sentence. It 
was not one life you took, father, but three, for I was carrying Jonathan's child. Mr. Day sank to the floor, whimpering like a child. This book extract for Yodakin has been performed by Alia Sinha and Ashish Paliwal. Music by Arjun Sen.